Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, in search of a fix to Calgary's property tax mess, we hear from City Councilor Jeremy Farkas. Also, is part of the problem property taxes themselves? Tax expert Bev Dalby gives us his assessment. More fallout from the missing and murdered Indigenous women inquiry and report. What sort of change is really needed in Canada? Plus, looking at 20 years since the invention of Napster and how it changed the music industry forever. They're talking taxes down at City Hall today, but I think we're to the point now where Calgarians, in particular Calgary business owners, want and need much more than just talk. I think at this point, people are looking for action. Is there really an urgency to dealing with this situation? And if there is, then just talking about it, putting off a, a decision, maybe that's not the way to be approaching it right now. Well, I want to find out where things stand in terms of what City Hall is looking at, what they're considering, and what, if anything, might happen today. So joining us for the latest, very pleased to welcome to the program, Ward 11 City Councilor Jeremy Farkas. Uh, Councilor, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much. All right. Now, I, I know you were hoping to get some solutions on the table today. In fact, you were prepared to propose your own solution. Now, what, what happened with that today? Yeah, absolutely. I went uh, to our finance committee today with an urgent uh, notice of motion calling for some very specific spending reductions in order for us to be able to address the growing tax burden and the tax shift. Unfortunately, I got uh, more or less ruled out of order, and it came down to kind of a scheduling uh, argument, and it was incredibly disappointing to hear some of the words around the table more or less about how hard it is for uh, council to find time these days when uh, we're, we should be thinking about how hard it is for Calgarians to pay their bills these days. Well, no kidding. So the uh, committee, the finance committee is meeting today, but it doesn't appear then as though anything's going to be decided today. What's the point of this meeting today then? Well, there's all sorts of other things. There's underpasses, there's sustainability uh, and resiliency policies, various strategies, uh, changes to our procedure bylaw. But uh, I, for one, think that it can't be business as usual. It's uh, I'm obviously not going to let go of this issue. Taxes are due at the end of the month. This is an emergency situation. Council needs to start acting like it. I, I don't think it, it's not time for politics as usual at City Hall. We, I think we need spending reductions to address the crushing tax burden that's facing Calgarians. And further to that, I'm demanding that the mayor convene an emergency session of council so that we can actually get some of these this uh, relief out the door. Right. Uh, and, and so what's been the response to that so far? 
Uh, in terms of my proposal, uh, quite good. Uh, I'm calling for an immediate uh, pay reduction for council, calling for uh, voluntary reductions in management as well as other staff, uh, additional packages of cuts and so on, as well as uh, drawing down that Opportunity Calgary Investment Fund, which is basically the slush fund for corporate welfare. So all of this together, I think, it can be able to meet the need, not just this year, but also with the spending reductions, carry that forward permanently. So again, we, we can't go to uh, these one-time Band-Aid solutions. And I know some on council are proposing uh, that, the, that the provincial government bail us out, right. but that, that sort of plan is dead on arrival. The, the province has refused, and it's very clear that this city council got us into this mess, and we need to get ourselves out. Well, yeah, so the the rest of council appears to be backing that plan, as you mentioned, which includes uh, an ask of the province to leave that, that $60 million of property tax revenue that goes to the province here. Uh, but if the province is already saying no to that, you, you don't think it's worth pushing ahead on that? Well, we need to be rowing in the same direction. I see the provincial government uh, reducing spending, trying to make things easier for business. It wouldn't make sense going to them for help when we're actually city hall's actions are undoing that work that they're doing. So I, I refuse to accept the idea that our council is willing to do nothing while every business in this town has put all that they have on the line uh, just to be able to survive. And I think the province uh, or the provincial minister made a good point in saying no. Council needs to take personal responsibility. The rising property tax burden is a problem of council's creation, and pointing fingers at the provincial government does nothing to address the key problem, which is overspending at City Hall. Why is why have we left this to the eleventh hour? Oh, that's a great question. This issue should not have surprised anybody. We've been through going through the downturn for the last four or five years, looking at the private sector, not just business owners, but uh, residents. Everybody has had to tighten their belts. Everybody has had to be able to make do with uh, the same or even less. And I realize that my plan is much bolder, and it's going to require hard choices, including leadership at the top. But I think now is the time that we really dig deep. We solve this once and for all. And more than anything else, Calgarians have made sacrifices. And based on what I'm hearing, they're demanding that their council do the same. So how much difference can we make in the short term then, even if this plan were to be accepted uh, and, you know, the spending is reined in, we're, we're taking money out of these different funds for the businesses who received in some cases, you know, a doubling of their property tax bill or more. How much of that are we going to be able to alleviate in the short term? So if uh, council goes for all of the measures that uh, I'm suggesting, there actually be a significant uh, reduction in the tax rate if that's adopted. I think it's really important for us to be vigilant going forward, uh, ide- identifying that line item of salaries, wages, benefits, and overtime. That is now uh, the lion's share of the, the city's operating budget. So being disciplined going forward, uh, say, for example, uh, the city's largest union received a 4% increase in 2017. We need to make sure that uh, continued contracts going forward reflect the economic reality. We also uh, should be moving away from this idea of uh, corporate welfare and politicians picking winners and losers in business. So when we have these uh, reserves or slush funds, I think that they should be earmarked to go back to the mill rate, uh, providing equitable and uh, broad-based tax relief. What about the balance or the imbalance, as it is, between uh, residential and non-residential ratepayers? Does that need a longer-term fix? I think we should be looking at that, generally speaking. But one of the things that 
is not really brought up in this conversation. So let me rephrase. Uh, there's that ratio of the residential to the property tax, uh, mm-hmm. property tax burden to what the businesses pay. Uh, there's this number that's trumpeted saying Calgary pays the, the least residential property tax, so residents should pay more. But it doesn't reflect the, the reality that a lot of these services that used to be in your property taxes are now in fees. So things like your black cart, uh, blue cart, green cart, all the other uh, stormwater, everything else that you pay for. So it may be true that in other places, homeowners have more of the burden, but it doesn't reflect the fact that homeowners are on the hook for all, all these other sorts of uh, fees and really being nickeled and dimed. So while I'm open to assessing and taking a look at that, I want to make sure that it actually takes into the whole cost of municipal government. All right. So I guess uh, in, in lieu of anything being decided today, it sounds as though your plan, your proposal anyway, will be discussed on Monday then? Uh, I'm obviously not going to uh, let go of this issue. Uh, taxes are due at the end of the month. We have to act. Uh, and again, I'd repeat that this is really a crisis situation. Council needs to, to acknowledge that. It's really no time for politics or the usual uh, city hall silliness. And we need sustainable spending reductions to be able to address the, the tax burden once and for all. And by the way, and can you clarify what happened? Because there, there seemed to be a suggestion that, that you didn't want to take part in this, this plan that was being uh, drafted or drawn up by the other city councillors. But uh, by your account, it sounds as though you were maybe left out of that or you weren't approached about that. So what, what happened exactly? You know, that this mayor and council would love nothing more than to be talking about something besides the crushing taxes and spending. Uh, uh, that talking about the council infighting and the drama just kind of misses the point that we're really here to serve Calgarians. Our focus needs to be on the businesses. That said, if anybody asked me to participate, I'd be happy to. All right. Well, we'll see what happens in the coming days. Councillor Farkas, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Yeah, shoot me an email anytime, ward11 at calgary.ca. I'd love to hear from everyone in terms of what you think of my proposal. All right, there you go. Jeremy Farkas, City Council, Ward 11. Uh, so he'll try again on Monday to bring his proposal forward, which he says does call for some drastic action. But uh, he's certainly making the argument that the times call for that. That if all of these measures were to be adopted, uh, City Council could really make a big difference on the property tax side. So it'd be interesting to see what kind of a reaction there is. And at least maybe it could be the starting point for a discussion about how best to address this. Maybe he doesn't have all the answers. Maybe his plan isn't totally the the right plan for right now. But maybe some of it is. Obviously, a whole lot of frustration in Calgary right now around property taxes uh, and with a plunge in values in the downtown core related to vacancies in the downtown core. That's meant some pretty steep tax increases for businesses elsewhere in Calgary. In fact, some seeing uh, doubling or tripling of the property tax bill and some really crazy assessment value changes uh, from year to year. So it, it, it is a real mess that the city has on its hands. And there, there is, I think, a need for some, some really drastic measures here. But is, is part of the problem the system itself and the way in which property taxes work and, and dealing with these kinds of big shifts in, in valuations? It has been argued, for example, that cities should have other revenue means at their disposal, maybe as a way of offsetting some of these uh, swings in, in property tax and, and property values. But how effective and efficient and fair are property taxes? I mean, there's probably a reason why this is the de facto way. The municipalities, not just across Canada, U.S. as well, rely on property taxes 
as a municipal revenue source. And of course, in Canada, here in Alberta, it is primarily the revenue source for municipalities. Well, somebody who has studied this question, uh, certainly one of this province's leading tax experts, Bev Dalby, is a distinguished fellow and research director of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Dalby, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us here. Good afternoon. Uh, property taxes do seem different in a lot of significant ways from other taxes that we're used to paying, income taxes, consumption taxes, etc. But wh- why is it that property taxes basically became the, the default revenue source for municipal governments? Well, because they are very local, that is, the land or buildings on which uh, of the property are located in a particular place, and the municipalities have jurisdiction over that, the boundaries of, of that uh, of that community, and so it's a, a reasonably good tax base because it's not going to, at least the land is not going to move to another jurisdiction if taxes become uh, high. Mm-hmm. It, it can be difficult for people to understand how it all works, though, and it can be uh, really uncertain from year to year what, what the effect is going to be on, on any given homeowner or, or business owner. Yes, property values uh, seem to be quite, fluctuate quite a, uh, quite a lot here in Calgary in recent years uh, on the upside and on the downside, and that has led to some major reductions in tax revenues from certain sources of uh, certain types of properties, the, the downtown offices, and increases in the values of, of other properties. And on top of that, there's been the city's policy of trying to collect a, a fixed amount of a fixed share of total property tax revenues from the uh, non-residential properties, which means that they have uh, increased the non-residential property tax rate quite significantly in recent years. So that combination has led to a lot of uh, volatility, fluctuations in individuals, uh, individual properties, uh, property tax burdens. So you don't think that what's happening in Calgary, what's happened over the last couple of years, it's, it's not an indictment of property taxes as, as a revenue generator? No, I think uh, we're economists uh, who, who, public, who study public finances generally feel that uh, property taxes are a good source of revenue for uh, cities and uh, municipalities. As I said, the, the land, uh, which is a major component, the value of the land, which is a major component of the property tax base, uh, doesn't move. So you don't have the problem of uh, tax competition leading to you know flight of the tax space or but of course it, the other part of the tax base is the value of the uh, structures uh, that are built on the pro- on the land and that that is the location of that kind of investment is uh, sensitive to to property tax rates and, and could uh, dim- be diminished if tax rates in for example Calgary get too high Right. And, and I think that's, you know, one of the concerns that people have, what we're seeing right now is, you know, when one, when one area goes down, the other then must, must go up. And it, it's really just a reflection of the value of the property, not necessarily any change in the, you know, for example, revenue being generated, profits being generated by a particular business. Yeah, so the property taxes are not really related to the profitability, the in, uh, income generation by the particular business that is uh, located in that pro- in that property. So, in in some sense, they can be a fixed charge that is independent of the, the profitability. 
but uh, you know we already have two levels of government that tax uh, corporate incomes, business incomes, individual incomes, and to have a third level of government uh, taxing incomes would lead to a, a lot of complexity and overlap. So I feel that it's probably better if the cities stick to this major tax base, uh, the property tax base. Uh, the other issue that comes up is that that while someone may have value on paper in terms of the value of their home, it's it's you know a similar situation where as, as opposed to profitability, it's a question of, of income and people who may be on on fixed income that the increased value on paper of their home doesn't really speak to their ability to to pay the property tax bill. Yes, I think you know, I think cities have tried to deal with that on the residential side, so that if, especially if elderly homeowners uh, see an increase in their property values, they can make, take you know, their uh, programs so that they don't have to meet those property tax increases. It can be uh, uh, kind of a lien against the the home when it's eventually uh, sold. I think most businesses, uh, of course, could run into similar problems, but they usually have more access to to finances to deal with these uh, a sudden swing in in property tax uh, taxes. So, in comparing property taxes to other potential sources of revenue, it's been proposed, for example, that municipalities could impose their own gasoline taxes. It's been proposed that we could uh, tack on uh, one or two percentage points of the GST as a a revenue generator for municipalities. How do we compare property taxes then to, to these other potential avenues, and how do they stack up in your view? Well, uh, local gasoline taxes, I guess, could could be levied. We see, you see that in the lower mainland in British Columbia. They have uh, higher taxes in, in that region. I think you'd have to have it on a regional basis as opposed to a a, a particular city basis because mm-hmm. there'd be potential to fill up your car just you know let's say in Airdrie if Calgary had a very high gasoline tax um, the value added tax of GST uh, that would create a lot of administrative burden uh, I think both on business and on the CRA and, and the last uh, I have heard from the CRA is they're not interested in collecting a, a, a GST at the at the municipal level so uh, when you look at the alternatives uh, property taxes still look like it's the best uh, tax base major tax base for the um, uh, municipal governments and uh, it's just a question of, of adopting sound, you know, assessment and tax rate policies to, to make it a, uh, a viable uh, tax tax source for governments. Mm-hmm. Well, and look, nobody wants to pay more tax. You wrote a piece back in November, though, about how, you know, it's going to be a tough choice for the city and a, a tough path to go down. But there really needs to be a rebalancing of property taxes that the ratio in Calgary in terms of what's put on business is a lot higher than, than other cities. How, how important is it to fix that? I think that's the long-term solution. I mean, there, there should be some short-term measures to try to le- alleviate the large increases in property taxes that we're seeing uh, this year. But they also have we also have to have a, a view about where the long-term uh, 
balance of, of taxes for residential and non-residential property should be. I, I think in 2008, 57% of the property tax uh, taxes collected were from the non-residential sector. That is not only high, I think, compared to other uh, municipalities, but it's it's high relative to the cost of providing services to the non-residential sector. So in the long term, I think the, the goal should be to bring the shares of property taxes from residences and non-residents, non-residential property more in line with the share of, of uh, the cost of providing services to each group. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I wanted to ask, I mean, nothing exists in a vacuum. That, that certainly, I think, we're seeing some positive steps being taken at the provincial level on the corporate income tax, and you've written a lot about the inefficiencies of, of corporate taxes as a revenue-generating tool, the potential benefit of lowering those taxes. Could a lot of that benefit be lost if if Calgary isn't able to, to alleviate the property tax burden on those same businesses? Well, studies by the C.D. Howe Institute uh, on the what's called the marginal effective tax rate on investment show that property re- resident, non-residential property taxes are a, a major component of the tax wedge, the tax burden that uh, discourages investment. So, so yes, uh, I'm not sure it would you know how to what degree it offsets the tax uh, CIT rate reduction, uh, but it, it is a major component of the total tax burden that affects especially investment in, in uh, uh, structures. All right. Well, appreciate the insight as always, Professor Dalby. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you. All right. Take care. That is uh, Bev Dalby, Distinguished Fellow and Research Director of the School of Public Policy of the University of Calgary. Of course, he's also one of the members uh, of the Blue Ribbon um, Fiscal Panel put together by the Premier to examine Alberta's finances. We accept the findings of the commissioners uh, that it was genocide. But our focus is going to be, as it must be, on the families, on the communities that have suffered such loss, on the systems that have repeatedly failed Indigenous women and girls across this country. So after refusing to use the word genocide yesterday, Prime Minister Trudeau did indeed use the word genocide today, but trying to say, let's move on from that. I don't know that that it's so easy for a lot of people to get past that. And I think a lot of Canadians maybe weren't paying close attention uh, to the missing and murdered Indigenous Women's and Girls Inquiry of the report yesterday are going to be somewhat surprised to know uh, that Canada engaged in genocide. It's a very serious and loaded word. Uh, albeit, I think it's it's being used here in, a, in an unconventional way, to put it mildly. It shouldn't be something we get hung up on, but I think a lot of Canadians are. If there's a disconnect between Canadians and, and this report and the other serious issues uh, addressed in the report, are we really going to be able to move forward on this? I think, though, even taking a further step back, though, that certainly I think Canadians more or less are willing to concede that we haven't done right by Indigenous Canadians. Uh, they have implemented policies or failed to implement policies that in various ways have contributed uh, to poverty and marginalization amongst First Nations. That we should have and we can do better. And, and so a willingness to acknowledge that I, I think would find more of a home amongst a lot of Canadians. And that's a much broader issue than the question of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Because now we're talking about a much broader issue of our relationship with First Nations, our treatment of Indigenous peoples. And obviously, it would seem really strange to say that there was genocide against Indigenous women. 
but not genocide against indigenous men. Because, in fact, indigenous men have been have suffered violence at a much higher rate than indigenous women. So did we lose some focus here right from the get-go? Uh, joining us for some thoughts on all of this, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program our friend Chris Selly. He's a columnist at the National Post, nationalpost.com, and an interesting uh, piece on, on this today. Chris, thanks for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, what struck you most about you know the, the conversation yesterday around this report and, and the many recommendations? Well, I think you're right. I, I think we are instantly uh, off on a tangent here in terms of the debate over whether or not it constitutes genocide. And if you even read the uh, report, you know, there's a 46-page legal analysis in there that I think makes makes a very um, compelling case that there was a, a cultural genocide, as it's been called historically, against indigenous Canadians. Um, but... <laughs> The case for a, a very specific genocide being, commit, being committed even to this day against uh, Aboriginal women and girls is, I think, very tenuous. And, and the analysis, you know, the report itself acknowledges that it's a novel use of the of the term. So I'm not really sure um, what the idea was there. Um, you know, it certainly has people talking, but as you say. Uh, for Justin Trudeau to belatedly agree and say, yes, it was genocide, and then, as you say, okay, but let's move on. That's not what we do with genocides. Um, you know, we don't just acknowledge them and then say, oh, but let's let's look forward. I mean, there needs to be more than that if, if we're going to call this a genocide. Um, and I think that, the, you know, I think everyone knows what the practical things that need to happen are, and those are just kind of falling by the wayside so far. Right. I mean, when you mentioned cultural genocide, and that was a term that came up during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, mm -hmm. and it's, I think it's easier to understand. Not everyone may will accept that necessarily, but it's easier to understand what that implies. So if, if the Truth and Reconciliation Committee uh, Commission already dealt with these issues, are, are, we, are we kind of duplicating that here through this process, even though it was supposed to have a different kind of focus? Yeah, I, I, think, I think so. And I think that the, the problem is that, that, you know, understandably, there was a focus on missing and murdered Aboriginal women specifically. You know, you, you had the uh, the Robert Picton murders uh, out in B.C. That, that, you know, there were very high-profile cases which brought women and girls, Aboriginal women and girls specifically, in, into the headlines. And so the call became... Um, for an inquiry into that specifically. But the fact is that, as you say, more, you know, vastly more Aboriginal uh, men are murder victims than Aboriginal women. Um, and, and, you know, for most of the same reasons. I mean, you know, any community that, that has um, low levels of education, low levels of income, uh, low employment, um, poor housing standards, crowded housing standards, you know, addiction problems, it's going to have problems with violence as well. I mean, this is no mystery. There's, there's nothing um, unique about Canada's indigenous population uh, that, that, that brings this about. Um, violence gets better. Violence gets less pronounced as people get richer, more educated, better housed, uh, healthier, and, and, and just generally more happy in their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's true of men and women alike. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that, that you have this laser focus. And, you know, I haven't read 
the whole the whole thing. But what I've read, it it, it really. It's almost like the report has to sort of remind itself every now and again that it is actually focused on women and girls. It'll talk about problems affecting indigenous peoples over and over again, and then it will say, oh, you know, and that particularly afflicts women and girls, which in a lot of cases it, it really doesn't. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's too focused um, on on uh, on half the population, and so that leads to some some very strange and kind of uh, diversionary arguments and, and recommendations. Right, and but it's interesting how we got to this one because, as you say, it, it, it maybe it made sense to have a, a narrow focus uh, on some of those issues that arose from the Picton case and and some others, but. It seems as though we wanted to have it both ways, that we need to have a narrow focus on this issue, but it, it really needs to have some broad sweeping conclusions that, that it, it's it's trying to be both and it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I mean, most of a lot of the recommendations are just to uh, enact recommendations from dozens of previous uh, reports and inquiries stretching back decades um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's it's it was a strange sort of a unique set of circumstances that led to this, and I think everyone kind of knew that what was going to come out of this was was going to be a bit of an odd um, an odd report that people had trouble with. Uh, but in terms of you know using the, the the word genocide, I think has really kind of up the ante um, while diverting people's attention away from what really needs to be done, which, which is, you know, these are big, expensive um, jobs. And, and in a lot of cases, it's, it's not quite clear how we're going to do it. I mean, the, the part of the, one of the recommendations of the report is essentially that there be uh, employment opportunities in every single First Nation where people live. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's a great idea. Uh, how on earth are we going to do that? Um, that's what, what we need to be talking about um, always. Well, and I agree. And, you know, and I, I think to a large extent, I, I think there is a willingness amongst Canadians to kind of have a reckoning with the past. And, and you know, reconciliation implies that, right? Let's acknowledge uh, where we've done harm to this relationship in the past and let's let's work to improve that. But at, at a certain point, Chris, I mean, do, do people start to check out or do people look for an excuse to check out? And, and does this 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 report and the talk about genocide, does it does it give people that excuse? I, I mean, I worry that it does. Um, you know, the, there is this tendency uh, for people to kind of throw up their hands and, and say, well, nothing ever gets better. And things do get better. I, I mean, if you look at all those indicators that I was mentioning, I mean, education, for example, uh, in, educational uh, attainment among Indigenous Canadians has been going steadily up and up and up and up uh, over years. Um, the number of, of murders is coming down overall, uh, although the number of murders of, of women specifically is, is fairly flat. Um, so it's not that things are, uh, I think it's so easy for people, as you say, to kind of say, oh, nothing ever works. You know, we spend all this money, we do all these things, and nothing ever gets better. But things do get better. Um, and, and I think that's something that often gets lost in, in all the you know, understandably negative headlines when, when awful things happen. But now, um, yeah, I mean, people really get their backs up, understandably, uh, over the over the term genocide. And, and you know, and, and we saw that with the term cultural genocide. I mean, that that's not, that was not uh, accepted by many Canadians as, as a suitable use of that word. 
Um, I, I think it's a fairly compelling description of, of, of what happened. Um, but now, you know, this, this very sort of convoluted um, definition of genocide that involves, like, Aboriginal men committing most of these murders that we're talking about. I mean, that is a very complicated and weird um, definition of genocide that, that you know, it's, it's an, in, an interesting academic exercise, uh, I suppose, to, to, to try and make that case. But I don't think it's one that Canadians are going to accept. And I, and I think it is, as you say, here we have an opportunity for people to kind of um, galvanize behind taking action. And instead, uh, it's really kind of... Um, rubbing people's noses in it. And, 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 you know, I'm not suggesting that anyone should pull any punches about what Canada's done uh, in the past, but I, I, if, they, if this was the best case they could make for genocide, I think they would have been much better off not making it. No, I would agree with that. Uh, much more at uh, nationalpost.com. Chris, appreciate your input on this. Thanks for joining us here today. Thanks, Rob. All right. Chris Selleck, columnist for the National Post, nationalpost.com. And I think I think he makes some great points. You know, he describes it as uh, more of an academic and ideological exercise than a roadmap to practical change. I think that's what people are willing to to accept. Well, let's see a roadmap to some practical change. What are the barriers that still exist? What what are the factors that contribute uh, to these tragic outcomes? It's interesting as, as he points out in his article, and this goes back to uh, Statistics Canada's analysis of the data that the higher rates of victimization appear to be related to the increased presence of other risk factors amongst this group, Indigenous Canadians, such as experiencing childhood maltreatment, perceiving social disorder in one's neighborhood, having been homeless, using drugs, having fair or poor mental health. So these are all specific things we can target, and none of those are specific to women and girls. Right, so that's another part of this this process. Is it's it's duplicating a lot of what the Truth and Reconciliation Committee did. It's meant to be a big sweeping look at the plight of Aboriginal peoples in Canada. But at the same time, then, as Chris says, it just kind of suddenly reverts back and says, "No, no, no, no we're talking about women and girls here." So you have this weird situation where Indigenous women and girls have died in large part at the hands of Indigenous men, which constitutes a genocide on the part of the Canadian government, of Indigenous women and girls. Indigenous men are not perpetrators in that genocide, nor are they victims of their own genocide, uh, despite the fact that they are far more likely to fall victim to violent crime. As Chris Selling notes, between 2014 and 2017, for example, there were 139 Indigenous female homicide victims, 428 Indigenous male homicide victims, three times as many. So, is that a genocide? Well, we don't know, because the report didn't look at that. But obviously, none of this is going to be fixed if you don't focus on all indigenous people. So, it, it becomes a bit of a convoluted mess, even if there are some, some meaningful recommendations in this. So, is this, uh, as Chris Selle describes it, a, a practical roadmap to change? I don't think it is. And does that, does that benefit anybody then? It was probably inevitable that given the growth of the Internet, that once we had the capability to easily and quickly download, stream songs, movies, TV shows, etc., that, that that's how we would obtain that content. 
But 20 years ago, it, it didn't seem inevitable. Or certainly uh, for the music industry, they weren't rushing to that. Things were going well for them. People were still buying CDs. And that was very profitable for them. Why, why would they have any interest in, in a complete overhaul of how people consume music? So it might have happened eventually. But the invention of, the unveiling of Napster sped that up considerably. And it changed everything. It was 20 years ago this month, June of 1999, when this uh, software was rolled out. And it very quickly became a phenomenon. Upwards of 80, 90 million users at its peak. That essentially it made it very, very easy and relatively quick for the time to download songs through this peer-to-peer sharing network. And of course, not only to download songs, but to do so for free. So instead of going down to the store to buy a CD, you download the Napster software, you find the songs you're looking for, boom, you got them. So it caught the music industry off guard and it certainly outraged the music industry. How dare people get these songs for free? How dare people not buy the CDs we're putting out? So certainly it accelerated that transition to digital. And even though Napster didn't last very long, it did change the music industry forever. Joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome the program, Alan Cross. He's a broadcaster, music writer, music historian, more at his website, a journalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, thanks so much for joining us here. You're welcome. You know, it, we, we're so used now to downloading and, of course, streaming music now. But in June of 1999, we really weren't doing that, were we? No. If you wanted to download music, you could. But it was really awkward, really cumbersome, and really unreliable. You had to use things like IRC channels or FTP programs that people had set up or chat rooms that were kind of dodgy. So this really annoyed uh, a Boston university student by the name of Sean Fanning, who came up with a really small, really nimble program that allowed people to trade these new things called MP3s. And on June 1st of 1999, he put it out into the wild, telling three friends, or sorry, telling 30 friends that he had met online, saying, don't share it with anybody. (laughs) But by that fall, 3.5 million people were using Napster and the music industry started to take notice. Right, because the way things were at the time when this launched is is basically how the music industry wanted it. They were pretty content with the status quo as it was. They were. They were very happy selling pieces of plastic to the public, something that they had been doing for 100 years. And they had gotten rather arrogant in the last part of the 1990s. First of all, we had been told ever since CDs were released in the early 1980s, that the price would come down. Don't you worry. I know they're expensive now, but we'll we'll do you good. It'll be fine. By the you know, the, as more plants come online, the cheaper compact discs will become. By the time we get to the middle '90s, the labels had reduced the manufacturing cost of CDs to a da- down to about a dollar a unit. Yet at the same time, they were still t- uh, charging fifteen ninety nine, sixteen ninety nine, seventeen ninety nine. I remember walking into a store and seeing a copy of Led Zeppelin IV for twenty four ninety nine. Wow! And people were starting to get really fed up. And remember, these are these are dollars measured in nineteen ninety six, nineteen ninety seven dollars. So they're a lot more than you know what we would consider today. Uh, the other thing that the music industry did was they um, phased out the CD single, and that meant that if you wanted just that one song. 
you had to buy the whole album for 19.99 or whatever. So there was a real sense of frustration amongst people about how they were being treated as consumers. So when Napster came along and opened up the universe to, you know, tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands or even millions of songs for free, uh, people went nuts for it. Well, and I remember it very vividly. It was it was crazy. I, you know, when I first heard about this, because obviously word spread very quickly that, well, how can this be? And it, and and that's what it was. It almost seemed too good to be true. There would there's all of this music out there, and it's you know it's free to download, and, uh, and obviously uh, it it was, and that really caused some consternation in the industry. And pretty quickly, Alan, they, they were trying to shut this down. Yeah. College students were especially big into this because at the time, most of us still had dial-up modems at home. But at universities, you had big, strong, high-speed Internet connections. Uh, so these people, these, these college students, could suddenly acquire more music than they could ever hope to afford, which got the attention of the Recording Industry Association of America. Uh, they had tr- had known that downloading the digital transmission of music was was coming, but they didn't seem to be too concerned about it because connections were slow and it took them up to an hour to download a song. And it's just a passing fad. We're not going to worry about it. But by the time we get to the fall of 1999 and the early part of 2000, there was a real concern. I mean, millions of people were using Napster to trade music online for free. And they began a series of legal actions to try and stop Napster from from existing. And then in the following year, July of 2000, Metallica had the famous lawsuit against Napster. There was uh, 350,000 odd names on a list that was 60,000 pages long that they dumped off on the front of Napster's headquarters in San Mateo, California, saying that Napster had uh, infringed on 95 Metallica songs 1.4 million times, which, of course, did not endure <laughs> yeah. uh, endear, uh, Metallica, and especially drummer Lars Ulrich, to the fan base because, well, two things. Number one, Metallica was seen as rich and they could afford it. Number two, uh, Metallica had built a reputation by encouraging their fans to record their shows and trade those tapes for free. And number three, they were part of the problem. They were the man. And... Uh, Napster seemed to be the company, the thing that was sticking up for the little guy. Right. And so it sparked quite a debate amongst the, the industry record companies. Do we crush this Napster? Do we try to make a deal with Napster? And, and a lot of different opinions uh, with artists. You mentioned Metallica. Dr. Dre was another hardliner. Uh, but there were others in, in the business. Selling Biscuit, Public Enemy, as you write about, yeah. that, that kind of embraced this, this new era. They did. And they thought it was really cool. I remember talking to Chuck D of Public Enemy about it, and he's saying, yeah, this is great. This is the democratization of the music industry. Uh, Limp Bizkit actually went out on a tour uh, that was sponsored by Napster. Um, the Offspring uh, did the same. They, 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 were, they were in support of, of online file trading. And it was really kind of funny because what, Napster, what, what, what the Offspring did was they began selling bootleg Napster T-shirts at their sh- through their sh- uh, their store, their shows at their shows, uh, and Napster had to send a, <laughs> a cease and desist order for copyright infringement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and obviously, then then others followed suit, and there were a lot of other uh, file sharing programs that, that popped up. But I, I guess this really did, in a lot of ways, pave the way for for iTunes that there there needed to be something that was legit in the eyes of the industry but that could take on illegal downloading. 
Right. As these lawsuits were happening, there was one meeting in Sun Valley, Idaho, between three of the five major labels at the time and the management of Napster. And there was discussions, you know, should we buy Napster and co-opt this technology and everything that they're doing for our own purposes or maybe even shut it down? The Napster people wanted a 50-50 split of revenues. The label said, uh, no, we want 90-10, and it, it just didn't work out that way. So Napster was eventually sued into extinction, and they were offline by the summer of 2001. However, a number of other programs had popped up in its wake. There was Nutella, there was Bear Share, and Audio Galaxy, and LimeWire, and Kazaa, and Scour, and a whole bunch of others. And as quickly as the, they were sued out of existence, another one would pop up. Right. So, so at this time, album sales are going down rapidly, and the music industry didn't know what to do about this growing demand for a la carte songs or digital downloads. They had come up with two programs of their own. One was called Press Play, and the other one was called MusicNet. But um, one was licensed, one would only license music from a couple of of the major labels, and one would license music from the other major labels, and you couldn't cross-license between the two. And there was all kinds of weird digital rights management happening. They were terrible, very, very complicated, very clunky, and um, they they just didn't work, and they were eventually put to sleep. The, but at the same time, the labels probably couldn't have gotten together and created a Napster killer on their own, because the Securities and Exchange Commission would have looked at this and gone, ah, that's monopolistic practice. You can't do this. So that's why they ended up having the two programs, Press Play and MusicNet. Uh, and it's also why the only person that they could turn to was Steve Jobs, when in 2003, he came to them and said, look, you guys are over a barrel. You can't do this on your own. You need me and my company to create a safe, legitimate online music store. You have to sign up to iTunes. And you have to agree to sell individual songs for 99 cents each. And the labels, with no choice, gave in. They did. It's so somewhat ironic, I suppose, that as we talk about the 20th anniversary of, of Napster this month, that this is the month uh, here in 2019 that, that iTunes, I guess, technically is going to cease to exist, right? Under that name, iTunes, what happened uh, with uh, the Apple Worldwide uh, Worldwide Developers Conference yesterday is they announced that they were going to break up iTunes into three constituent constituent parts. And frankly, about time. iTunes had been getting bigger and bulkier and bloatier ever since it was released in 2003 through 12 iterations or whatever it was. So now they're breaking it into music, podcasts, and television. And basically, the music app is what you see on your iPhone or your iPad, and it's pretty much what you're going, what you you can get from from the old iTunes. So it's, it's, it's not a big deal. The iTunes Music Store will continue to operate. All the songs that you've purchased uh, are going to continue to be available to you. You'll be able to buy you know, songs for $1.29 or whatever the price is now. And uh, it's just that iTunes really needed to be put out to pasture. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it, it shows how the industry was able to find a way to monetize downloading. Now, certainly, we're in a streaming era. And, and despite that, I mean, despite having Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify, all of it, I mean, you, you got a piece today at the Journal of MusicalThings.com about how piracy is still an issue. In fact, it's, it's on the rise, interestingly enough. I don't get that. I mean, with streaming, you can get access to over 50 million songs. There's the free, free tier on Spotify uh, for free, 
Mm-hmm. Why would you want to bother with all the hassle that comes with stream ripping and illegal downloading? Yet 17 million people apparently did that in 2017, which is the latest date that we have for these uh, for this data. Uh, it's it, it boggles my mind. But there are some people who just don't want to pay ten dollars a month for 55 million songs. By the way, I guess we're still seeing the impact of Napster, right? It, it really conditioned people to, to think about it differently. Well, it did because we finally got to go completely a la carte. It's like a Chinese food menu. I don't want that whole album. I just want that one song. Over time, what that has meant is that people aren't listening to albums the way they used to. They just want a collection of songs, which they put together in playlists, or they listen to other people's playlists. So we've become a real a la carte nation when it comes to listening and collecting and curating music for ourselves. There are still people that will buy CDs and vinyl and buy full albums from, from iTunes or wherever, but we've changed from this collection of coherent songs that was designed and sequenced by an artist to be heard in a specific way to just the single songs that we want to hear, much to the consternation of artists who prefer the album is a long-form storytelling format. Much more on all of this. Again, at journalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, thanks uh, as always. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. There you go. That is uh, broadcaster, music writer, music historian Alan Cross at journalofmusicalthings.com. As mentioned, uh, in town for an event uh, in Calgary. It's going to be uh, in Calgary June, or rather July 20th. For an event, more details again at journalofmusicalthings.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.